Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we will be in John chapter 6. Today we'll read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Today's passage will be 15 through 21, uh, but we will capture the context starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii. $33,000 worth of bread is not sufficient for them for, even, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here, though, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was a, much grass in the place, so the men sat down in the number of about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, Go and gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which they had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And where we will begin today, verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again. Notice that word again, to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already grown dark, and Jesus had not come to them, verse 18. Then the sea became alive. It arose. It, it, it began to stir up because a strong, a very strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Amen. Thank you. Today, my goal for you, for each of us, is to let Jesus into the boat. That in the midst of the seas, in the midst of the stormy waves of life, that you do not look at what you are afraid of, you do not look at the waves crashing in or the lightning, but in the midst of fear, that you would let Jesus into the boat to calm the waves of your life. The disciples in John chapter 6 remind me of my early days of corporate America. I talk about this quite frequently, and I'm sure some of you can start writing a biography of my three years at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Uh, I worked there for three years, and uh, I would describe the work environment at best chaos. Uh, it was complete and total chaos. Uh, most Monday mornings were completely dreaded. They were uh, terrible days. I'll just say it that way. I would wake up, <laughs> I would have nightmares Sunday night before going to work on Monday. 
Because every Monday morning, what would happen, every Monday morning, right at 7.30, soon as the phones became live, soon as we opened our doors, our phone lines would become six deep, and I would see these blinking lights of all of our phone lines blowing up. And what it was was body shops, dealerships, telling us to come and pick up their customers. So what we would do as a manager, we would take all of our employees, right, and we would send them out to pick up all these customers. And then as customers came back, we would send employees out for more and more and more. So pretty much I was a lot of times just the only person actually in the branch itself. And about 9 o'clock on Monday morning, something terrible would happen. Inevitably, almost every Monday morning at 9 o'clock, we would run out, run out of rental cars. Now, you ask me, how does that even happen? We can have that conversation later on if you want to talk about the logistics of everything. But just imagine the scenario, right? You have all these phones blowing up, all these angry customers on the line, and then you have a lobby full of irritated customers ready to go to work, and we had nothing to rent to them. Now, just to let you know, those were very anxious days, and I am feeling my heart racing right now as I share those stories. Um, but on Monday mornings, all we could see were the waves, the chaos, and all of the problems, and all of the angry customers. But then in the midst of the chaos, the branch manager would walk in, and his name was Clay, right? And all of the waves would dissipate. All of the chaos would subside. I, I loved working for Clay because he had the uh, Jedi mind game of the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, right? He would just... Find a way to not make people angry any longer. It was amazing to watch. But in the midst of the waves, the man in charge, the man in control, the man who was all be-all in that branch came in and settled the waves and settled the chaos of our hearts. This is an image of Christ, so to speak, that in the midst of the waves of life, that there is one man still in charge that in the midst of the circumstances that we now face in our culture, both politically and health-wise, that there is still somebody that is in control. But so many times we are like I was on Monday morning at 7.30. You're looking at all the problems. You're looking at all the phone lines blowing up. You're looking at all the waves crashing in. You're looking at all your fears and your failures and all of your anxiety, and you completely forget who is actually in control. But going back to those days in Enterprise Rent-A-Car, it was only until we submitted, until we let him lead us in our lives before the waves could subside. I believe it's the same way in our Christian life, that until we actually put Jesus into the boat, and when we actually let him lead us, will we continue to struggle with our fears and our failures. So many times... We get so fearful. We get so wrapped up in looking at all of the problems that all of a sudden Jesus Christ becomes some kind of phantom of our imagination instead of the creator and covenant God named Yahweh. This is what I see in the story today. The disciples are in the middle of the sea facing great danger they are terrified, and then they see Jesus walking on the water, and then they must make a choice in that particular regard. Today, I'm answering the question that in stormy seas, what do we do? In the midst of the chaos of life, what should we do? So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, go to John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6 is another famous passage. It is the story of Jesus walking on the water. In other accounts, we see that Peter walks on the water, and the Gospel of Matthew is where that happens. But the Gospel of John takes a little bit of a different approach to this story. But this famous passage of Jesus walking on the water comes on the heels of another famous passage that we just got done talking about, of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And if you were here, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is not really Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's really what? Jesus feeding the 20,000. That Jesus feeds a stadium of people with a happy meal, so to speak. Five barley loaves and two fish. And and what is the purpose of that story of the feeding of the 5,000? He is testing the disciples to see if they have learned what John chapter 5 was all about. John chapter 5, if you remember, is all about that Jesus is fully God. That He is deity. And he proves it by healing the lame, the sick man beside the pool of Bethesda. He proves it by being of the sameness with the Father, verses 18 through 30. And he proves it through the four witnesses in John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. And then in John chapter 6, he puts forth a test to his disciples to see if they have learned the lesson. And if you were here last week, you know probably that they have not learned it completely, that Jesus is fully divine, that he is God. And then today, in John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21, in a sense, he retests them on the same thing. But if you were to look, if you were to notice in John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21, then you would probably seem, it would probably seem that the story in John's gospel seems a bit incomplete. Because think about the story of Jesus walking on the water. How many details do we know? We know that Peter got out of the boat. We know in Mark's account that it says that the disciples learned nothing from the loaves. And even this week on Tuesday morning, I was sitting there in staff meeting, and I I felt as if John's account of the story of Jesus walking on the water was incomplete. But it is not. Because God has spoken through John to arrange the events of this story in his perfection, that the words of God are perfect and have been perfectly stored for us to understand and to learn, and that God has arranged John's words for a particular lesson and a particular meaning, which we will see today. That today we are answering the question, in stormy waters, in stormy times, what should we do? Notice there is three basic parts to this passage. You have three things going on. You have the circumstances for Jesus walking on the water in verses 15 through 17. You have the crisis in verses 18 through 19. And then you have the calm. Notice it with me. Verse 15. Notice the circumstances for Jesus walking on the water. And they are two. Verse 15. So Jesus... Aware that they had intended to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again. Notice that word again there. He withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already been come dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. This is the circumstances for Jesus walking on the water, and they are twofold. You see Jesus' withdrawal, and you see the disciples' weariness. You see Jesus' withdrawal, and the disciples' weariness. Now, notice circumstances aware that Jesus withdraw, or withdrew, verse 15. So Jesus, aware that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again. 
And notice that word again, that this is not the first time that Jesus has withdrawn to be by himself, to pray and to be with his Father. He withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. So catch the story. So Jesus, directly after feeding the 20,000 people, the un, probably the ungrateful people that have not learned the lesson themselves that Jesus is God, right? They think he's king, they think he's the Messiah, but they have not wrapped this, their head around that he is God. So directly after feeding the 20,000 people, what does Jesus do? He withdraws. And the, the question I have is why? After this great victory, after this great miracle, where Jesus probably could have taken the throne in Jerusalem, Jesus decides to withdraw by himself. Why? There's two reasons. I believe reason number one is to prepare the soil for what is to come. He is preparing the disciples. In other accounts, in Matthew, I believe it says that Jesus sent the disciples to the other side. Jesus preparing the stage for him walking across the water. But then there's also a second reason here, I see. The second reason is to spiritually recharge, to find direction. I want you to think about this phrase, that with Jesus withdrew again. How many times does that say that in the gospel? Think about very strategic times in Jesus' ministry. He withdraws to pray and to be with the Father, to rest. Think about Mark chapter 1, where Jesus spends a whole day healing all of these people in the whole city. And I would imagine there's more people in the city to be healed, but what does Jesus do? He withdraws and prays early in the morning, and then what does He do? He walks away from the city, and His disciples say, Where are you going? He says, Other people need to hear the gospel. What else does Jesus withdraw and pray? Mark chapter 6, I believe, is where Jesus spends all night in prayer with his father, and then the next morning he wakes up and he picks the 12 disciples. When else does Jesus withdraw to pray? Probably the most famous time is Jesus withdraws to pray the night before he is crucified in the garden of Gethsemane, that he is there in the garden praying to his father to, to spiritually recharge, but also to gain Direction, And then here in John chapter 6, in a very pivotal moment of his ministry, Jesus decides to withdraw to prepare the soil and to spiritually recharge and gain direction. On a quick rabbit trail, I think we can learn something here. That if the omnipotent creator of the universe needed to rest and spend time with the Father, then so do we. I think so many times that we as Christians, we are so focused on our schedule, we're so focused on what God may have for us next, but that sometimes, you know, God created a Sabbath for a reason. (laughs) Can I say it that way? So that we would rest and that we would spiritually recharge, that we would spend time in prayer with the Father, that this Christian life is not just about an external performance, but it's about walking with God and knowing Him. And then out of that, serving Him. But that God has created us to have a relationship with Him, and at strategic times, we should withdraw and know the Father. So you see circumstance number one of Jesus withdrawing, but then notice the disciples' weariness. Notice all of the details. There's so many things going on in verses 16 and 17. Notice it with me. Now when evening came, notice that little phrase, His disciples went down to the sea. They came from the mountain where the feeding of the 20,000 was. They went down to the Sea of Galilee. And after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And then it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. What's the circumstances for the disciples' weariness? Well, notice, number one, it was evening. It was evening. Now, why is that important? What does it tell you? It tells me 
that it's the same day. That the feeding of the 20,000 people, it is the same day. It is later on that evening. But why is that important? I want you to think about something real quick. How would you be feeling physically, spiritually, and emotionally? If you had a basket and you just served 20,000 people, a stadium of people, all day long. Let me ask you a question. How would you be feeling? You would be feeling exhausted, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically, that the disciples get no break. They go from feeding the 20,000 people, and then Jesus calls them down the mountain and says, Oh, by the way, I know you've had a long day, but I need you to row this boat eight miles to the other side. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever paddled a boat for more than a mile, but that's a, probably a pretty exhausting day. The disciples here are completely and totally tapped out. Let me, let me allow you to put on the shoes for just a second. How many of you have ever gone on a mission trip or to a Christian conference for a weekend or something? Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you feel after you get back? You are completely exhausted. So here the disciples are. They're completely worn out. And Jesus withdraws and the disciples are weary. But then notice the crisis at their hands. Verse 18, in addition, the sea began getting rough. Because a strong wind was blowing, verse 19, then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, or three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. The circumstances, Jesus' withdrawal and disciples' weariness, the crisis is this stormy sea without hope of rescue. The English translation in the New American Standard does a good job translating to English, but it loses some of its, uh, we would say, some of its color. The, the words, the one word began getting rough there is the Greek word diagero. Diagero. How to actually write that down, okay? And how to actually say that, okay? Diagero. What that literally means is, is that the sea came alive. It, it woke up. In the original language, it woke up with a great, great, great wind, is literally kind of what it says in the original language. The sea arose. Sea became alive. But then notice verse 19, when they had rowed 25 or 30 stadia, in my translation here, how far is that? In your translation, it probably says three or four miles. Okay, so let's, let's, just, put this, let's just put this all together. What are the, what's the crisis at the disciples' hands right now? They are exhausted. They have spent all day feeding 20,000 people. Jesus then says, go down the mountain and then take a boat and row to the other side. And it's dark and they're, in the, they're on the Sea of Galilee. But where are they on the Sea of Galilee? Exactly. Where are they? It, it tells you that in my translation here it says 25 or 30 stadia. In your translation it probably says 3 or 4 miles. Now where are they in the Sea of Galilee? I'm hearing it. If you remember last week, the Sea of Galilee is 64 square miles. If you put that in a perfect square, it is eight miles across and eight miles up. So if they have rowed three or four miles, where does that put them within eight miles? It puts them dead middle of the Sea of Galilee. So they have been rowing all night long. They're in the dead center of the Sea of Galilee. It is dark, and then the storms wake up. 
And then notice what they said, and they were afraid. Harvey Ching pointed this out earlier. I think it was last week. He said to me that, who are the disciples? They're afraid in verse 19, but who are they? They are fishermen. They're comfortable on the Sea of Galilee. So the fact that they are frightened tells you something very profound. It tells you how great the storm is. So they are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It is dark. They are four miles from shore, and there are big enough waves to make them actually terrified in a place that they are very comfortable. The disciples are exhausted emotionally, spiritually, physically. They are hopelessly in the middle of the Sea of Galilee without hope of rescue, without a shore nearby. And Jesus, the sovereign God of the universe, has them right where he wants them. He knows exactly what he's about to do, but the disciples here are completely and totally hopeless to solve the problem. When I read the story of the disciples, I, th- I think of a lot of people probably in this room. That some of you probably feel like you're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with waves crashing over you without help of rescue nearby. That there is something in your life that is causing you fear and anxiety. And you feel like Jesus is far away, that he's just a, maybe a phantom of your imagination and that the seas and the waves are crashing in, and there is no hope of rescue. And I'll just say it this way, God has you right where he wants you. Because as I see my Savior, as I see him in the Gospel of John, that he is fully God, that he is the creator God, that he is the covenant-keeping God, that he knows everything that is going on in our lives, and he has placed us there to teach us something altogether. But what I want you to notice is then the calm in verses 20 through 21. And Jesus said to them, it is I. I want you to notice that phrase, it is I. I'm going to talk about it here in just a minute. It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The circumstance is Jesus' withdrawal and the disciples' weariness. The crisis at their hand is that they're in the midst of stormy seas without hope of rescue. And then the calm that Jesus once again proves that he is God. But I want you to think about what else he is proving here. He has proven, he has shown them that he is the Messiah, that he is divine, that he's of the same nature with the Father, that he has authority with the Father, right? He, he has proven that he is the Lamb of God, that he is King. He, the, he, they know all of these things. But what does he prove here that's different? Jesus proves here that he is the Creator God and the Covenant God. Because here they, are, here they are, the disciples are in the middle of darkness. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, hopelessly to find res- rescue. And then Jesus walks on the water and then calms the seas. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that they fell on their face and they worshipped. So just quite recently, Jesus has proven that he is the God over sickness, that he is the God uh, over that he is of the same authority with the Father. He has proven it with the four witnesses. He has proven that he is the God of provisions and that here Jesus proves that he is the creator God. He is the controller of all things. I, I, I think sometimes that we like to take Jesus and we like to compartmentalize him. 
We say that Jesus is my Savior, or that He is the Messiah, that He is King, but we very rarely have an idea of the all, the whole picture. Because think about this, that the Savior that has died for my sins is also the guarantor of my salvation. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the payer for my sin, is also the one that will come back again with a new heaven and new earth. That he is the creator God, the one that holds all things together, but he is something also in addition to that. Notice verse 20 again, he said to them, it is I. If you have your pen, if you haven't marked that by now, I encourage you to highlight those three words, it is I. Because for the very first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals his full nature to the disciples. Because that, those three words, it is I, is two Greek words that are very, very important. They're the Greek words, ego eimi. Now you're saying, what does that mean? Those two Greek words mean I, I am. Why does that sound familiar? You probably have heard that the Gospel of John has seven I am statements, that I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What are those saying to the disciples and to the nation of Israel? When he says, I, I am, ego, Amy, what is he exactly saying? He, he is saying that he is Yahweh. That he is Jehovah, that he is the covenant-keeping God. That into a Jew, he's saying this: that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he is the holder of the covenants to Israel, and that the promises of Israel will be fulfilled. If you're the disciples in the boat, a light bulb at this exact moment goes off. But let me just ask you the question. This is not the first time that Jesus actually says these two words, ego eimi, that I am Yahweh, so to speak. When is the first time he actually says it? He discloses it in the Gospel of John for the very first time to a reject of society. To a woman that was so ashamed to draw her water at the proper day, at the proper time of day, that she comes in the middle of the day and finds the Savior of the world, Yahweh. He reveals to her in John chapter 4 that he is Yahweh. But this is the very first time that Jesus reveals his full nature. That he's not just a God, but that he is the God. He is Yahweh or Jehovah. One commentator says this, that Jesus is the I am, the voice behind the unconsumed bush in Exodus chapter 3, the one who walks across the stirring sea, who speaks on behalf of God in the first person, and Jesus' presence silences there in our fears, exposes our need to receive him in the fullest. So Jesus here in the Sea of Galilee proves that he is the creator of God, proves that he is the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh or Jehovah, we would say as well, but then notice in verse 20, what is required for the disciples to see and to, to see him in the calms, the waves to be calm. Notice verse 21. So they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Wait a sec, what, what happened? So wait a, wait a sec. So they were willing to take him into the boat, because why not? Here is Yahweh, here is Jehovah, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they were willing to take Yahweh into the boat, and what happened? Immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. What, what, so wait a second, the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It is nighttime. They are four miles from shore, and then when they receive Jesus in the boat, the waves calm, and they are at land. What happened? He teleports them Star Trek style. Okay? 
But what must the disciples have done? Here the disciples, they are terrified, they are exhausted, they are focused on the waves, they are frightened. And then Jesus walks by, and what must they do? It says they are willing to take him in the boat, and only until they took him into the boat did the waves calm. My point today is this. If you have your notes, they're on the back. It is this, that in the midst of stormy seas that we would let Jesus into the boat. In the midst of stormy seas, that we would let Jesus into the boat because he is creator and covenant God. As I've already mentioned this morning, some of you are going through turbulent times. Some of you are going through great trials and tribulations. And some of you are on calm waters, and I'm going to say to you, if your life is good at the exact moment, then just wait a couple months, okay? But can I just metaphorically go here? What are the waves here? What are the waves in John chapter 6, and what are the waves in our life? I'm just going to label them real quick. The waves that we have in our life are anything that we are fearful of, anything that causes us anxiety, anything that we do not have full control of. Let me ask you the question, what is causing you fear? What is causing you anxiety? What is causing you to stay up late at night? Can I, what do we do when the waves crash in over our boat? What do we typically do in those kind of circumstances? When there is fear all around us, what do we do? We do not set our eyes on the creator and covenant-keeping God of Yahweh. What do we do? We focus on the waves. We focus on what we are fearful of. Can, Let's just talk about this. We're fearful of COVID. We're fearful of the political nature of our culture. We're fearful of socialism, communism, and all these things, right? But who is still in control? Who is still creator God? Who is still the covenant-keeping God? Who is still watching us and that he is still sovereign over all of creation? Friends, let me ask you the question. Will you set your eyes off of what you're afraid of and onto the Savior of the world? So many times when we are fearful, we focus just on those things, or we do a little bit better, we go find a bucket to start tossing the water out of our boat instead of just realizing the truth that Jesus is God. He is creator. He is covenant-keeping God. He is Yahweh. If you haven't gotten the memo that Jesus is God by now, then you haven't been listening. But that Jesus is I am. He is the one that has come, that his Savior, that is a Savior of all, the Lamb of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that holds all things together, Colossians chapter 1. If you are in the midst of the storm and waves are crashing over you, waves of fear, then let me just say this. I am is watching you. He is in control. And will you be like the disciples? Will you let Jesus into the boat? Will you submit to him and his lordship? Will you realize that he is fully in control and that he has your best interest in mind and his glory, that everything happens for our good and his glory? For my application today, I have question number one is this. Are you in the midst of stormy seas? Now, I would imagine some of us here this morning can answer that question very easily. There are probably some things in our life that are causing us great fear, but some of us here this morning are, would have a difficult time answering, are we on stormy seas? And let's just say it this way. What are you afraid of? Where are you in the midst of stormy seas? Are you disappointed about something? 
Are you depressed about something? Are you desperate for an answer about something? Where is a storm in your life? And then question number two I have is, will you let Jesus into the boat? Will you let him control the situation and calm the waves of your heart? So many times we are like the disciples before Jesus shows up, that we are rowing our boat, trying to make it to safety, when the whole time God is just saying to you, will you just trust me? Will you let me into the boat to help you? And then question number three I have is if you are the disciples, if you are rowing the boat, trying to find safety, trying to find the shore that is four miles off, and if you do not let Jesus into the boat, if you do not let him and submit to his lordship and his sovereignty, if you do not allow him, then what does that reveal about your faith? Because as I see the scripture, as I think about life and the Christian life, that God has not changed, that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the question is, and the choice is ours, that will we let Jesus help us solve the problem? Will we relinquish to him control over the circumstances that we cannot control? Or will we find a bucket to toss out all of the fear and failures of our life? Who is in control? Will you let Jesus into the boat? In stormy seas, let Jesus in because he is the creator and covenant God. Allow me to close with a thought. This comes from a commentator. He says this, that if we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, have received him willingly, though the night be dark and the wind be high, that we may comfort ourselves with this, that we shall be ashore shortly, and we are nearer to think to it than we think we are. My... Before I close, I do this every week. If you do not know Christ Jesus, if you do not have a relationship with him, if, if this uh, sermon is like uh, Chinese or something to you, is totally foreign, and you don't know what I'm talking about, this Jesus guy, then probably you do not have a relationship with God, that you have never trusted him as Savior. That, that if I, that, without being saved, the thought of spending time with God seems like total nonsense. Are, have you ever taken your life, have you ever seen that you and I are sinners, that we make mistakes, that we cannot earn our way into the presence of a perfect God because we are wildly imperfect? Can I get an amen to that one? And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that what happened because of our imperfections, Jesus Christ came and he died to save us from our sin, and that if we believe in him, that we shall be saved from the penalty of our sin. What is beautiful about the gospel is that it's not just fire insurance, that the gospel does not just grant me eternal life, but it also changes my earthly life here, that now when I believe in Jesus Christ, that I am a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, things new things have come. Have you ever believed in Jesus Christ? If you have not, then I encourage you to do so, and then see myself or others after the service. Some of you this morning are staring at the waves that are crashing in over your life and you are fearful of all the things that are going on in the world. But will you surrender to Jesus as God, as Lord, as Sovereign, as Yahweh, as the Creator of all things? Because who can add one hour to our life by worrying about the circumstances that we cannot control? Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I look at I look at your word, and uh, so many times it's so easy to, to to look at it as as something that happened two thousand years ago. Or I'm not really in that same situation, but Lord, 
I, I believe a lot of us are. I mean, how could we not be? We live in a world that is just on fire. There's so many things going on in the world that we simply cannot control that is causing fear and anxiety amongst us all. Lord, I pray that we would realize that you have us right where you want us, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose, that everything is working out for our good and your glory. Lord, we don't understand it. We feel like we're in the midst of the sea without safety nearby. But Lord, I just pray that we would trust you as sovereign, as creator, and as Yahweh, the protector of the promises that you have given us in the Bible. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you see us in our sin and that you have paid the penalty for it. And I thank you for those that are online. I thank you uh, for our church family that continues to be faithful, to, to attend and to give, even from afar. We thank you for them. I miss them and I love them and I pray for protection for them and for all of us. And I thank you for this church and for the people here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.